It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show, and today we're on a trip down memory lane to 1951 through to 1956 in Chicago, Illinois, at uh, the Chicago Amphitheatre, where all sorts of things happened, as I've discovered. <laughs> um, and uh, to join me on this journey, indeed, of discovery, um, is Mr. John Dinsdale. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty well. It's it's weird. We live in a black and white dimension now after watching this. It's like we went back to the classic <laughs> and all the colour has been drained out of the universe. Indeed, it is. This is a bit like it, it is. Well, basically what happened was I was looking around for obviously for something different that we haven't done with the Troopany show because after eight years of doing this, we've watched wrestling from everywhere, of every angle, every stripe, and you're always looking for something different to have a look at. And I found this archive, the official Chicago Film Archive, which is done by the city of Chicago. And they have an archive of wrestling from the International Amphitheater, which was shot for um, Fred Collar's Fred Collar Enterprises. So I'll explain who he is in a minute, um, which was an NWA affiliate, which was the big show in Chicago in the 1950s. And it was all recorded at the International Amphitheater. And the International Amphitheater was down in the old Union stockyards, which was um, one of the original like suburbs of uh, Chicago, where Chicago was built. Basically, it's where all the pork packing was invented. Basically, like how you go and get like a um, a pack of pork from the supermarket, it was invented in those Union stockyards in like 150 years ago. And um, it is probably the closest thing to Liz Truss's pork markets. Exactly, yeah. This was the invention of, this was where they invented pork markets, to be honest with you. Before this, you went to your local butcher who killed a big pig in the backyard. Now, it was built in, um, what was it? It was built in uh, 1934, and it was, is a 9,000 seater stadium, which was big enough, as we discovered, to run indoor drag racing in the 1960s. Indoor drag racing. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and there's pictures, you can find them on the internet, and it's just crazy. There's a drag strip in the building, on the floor, people sat in the stands watching drag racing indoors, because it's Chicago and it snows, so they couldn't do the drag racing outdoors. So the obvious thing to do is to go indoors into a building with concrete walls everywhere and no ventilation, so the exhaust forms the fume, hangs in the air and creates its own, creates its own weather system. That's brilliant on a smooth, shiny concrete floor, which is ideal for drag cars to get grip on. <laughs> so anyway, Coming out of this particular hall was Fred Kohler Enterprises. Fred Kohler um, was a wrestler who was born in 1903 uh, with the given name, unfortunately, of Frederick Koch. Um, when he became a professional wrestler, uh, one of the promoters in Chicago suggested he change his name to Fred Kohler because there was a, a famous film star of the same name. Anyway, whilst he was a mildly successful professional wrestler, where he really kind of got his foot in the door with, with promotion and became an NWA affiliate in the 1950s, or more specifically, he started promoting in the 1920s before the NWA exist, existed. Um, and then 
took over Chicago uh, really as the main promoter back in the days of Everett Marshall and the Goldust Trio, and more of whom later. And he would promote Chicago Stadium and then eventually the Chicago Amphitheater. So this was like top level wrestling. Um, and when I kind of like said, hey, let's do this, John, what were your thoughts when I showed you this playlist of black and white matches? You, you sort of originally said like, hey, do you want to watch some black and white wrestling from the 50s and 60s? And I was like, well, we've never done that before. And I'm like, OK, yeah, we'll do this. And I, th- the funniest message you sent me was, um, how are you more excited for 1950s black and white <laughs> wrestling than you are New Japan? And I'm like, well, you see, I haven't seen 1950s and 60s black <laughs> and white wrestling. And in fairness, I was going into this a bit a bit with a spiteful agenda here because I like classic role wrestling I do I love any sort of technical wrestling but a lot of people who claim like the golden age of wrestling who aren't the sort of 80s WWF sycophants will like hail this as god era wrestling and will never let you hear the end of it so I was kind of going into this thinking right if these matches suck I can spite them for this, but I'll I'll be honest that they, they have a point. They need to get out of their own ass a bit, but they've got a point. This was yeah. pretty good. It was it was a fully entertaining several hours of uh, watching wrestling. I had yesterday watching this playlist. But let's just go back to 1949 because Fred Kohler has enrolled in the NWA. Um, he his his world champion because <laughs> before the days of the NWA there were several world champions which usually meant from well on the south of illinois uh was chief don eagle um and obviously they abandoned that world championship when because that was kind of the idea of the nwa um and they were trying to unify all of the world championships that were available in the united states to have one unified champion he would then travel to all of the territories and defend the championship uh, Kohler was an NWA stalwart through and through when it suited him. Um, and he famously instructed Gorgeous George to shoot on his former protege, Chief Don Eagle, when Chief Don Eagle was the American Wrestling Association World Heavyweight Champion. This was before the Minnesota AWA. Um, uh, the idea being to weaken another Illinois promoter called Al, ha- Al Haft, uh, who was the booker of Eagle. So you can imagine that went well with his fellow promoters. Um, so he, he's a guy who plays the game and he knows what he's doing when it comes to wrestling promotion by this point. He's been a promoter for around about 15 years. And we start our story with our playlist with arguably the two best professional wrestlers in the world at the time. That would be your Bern Gagne against your Aloysius Martin Thez, otherwise known as Lou Thez, arguably the NWA heavyweight champion of all time and the guy who set the tone for what an NWA champion should be. Take note, the current NWA champion who was crowned last night. <laughs> and if you could, you could faintly hear a noise last, last night, which was the sound of the earth being pulled off its gravitation like this by Luther spinning in his grave. Anywho, John, what's your thoughts on this match? Because obviously you will have heard of the Ganya and you have the and watching these two in their prime was a bit of a treat, really. Yeah, it's it's quite impressive just 
how much can be like brought out of an almost an hour of wrestling despite the sort of not limitations but the selective nature of the like the the in-ring action like you'd think an hour of a lot of headlocks a lot of sort of punching and forearming and a lot of technicals that you'd get bored but like no somehow you don't it's very very intelligent very well designed wrestling and it's a style that lends itself quite nicely to these sort of longer hour-long draws i suppose because they were so like common back then because you couldn't have the champ lose but you never wanted your sort of the star you brought in or the whole like the person who ran the territory to get buried as such so draws were pretty common it's just yeah it sort of shows you that wrestling can be intelligent (laughs) i mean yeah you're right i mean i'm I'm looking at the minute. I've had it on since before we started podcasting because obviously it's an it's an hour long match, and I just let it run in the background so I can see what's going on. And Vern Gagne has literally had Luthers in a headlock for four minutes, and the crowd are absolutely on the edge of their seats. And in this match, no one ran the ropes until about forty minutes in. Then Lou yeah. tried a trick move off the ropes after about forty minutes, and Vern got out of the way of it. And it, it's the closest American wrestling I've seen to the old world of sports style wrestling, if that makes sense. I just can't quite believe it is as good as I thought, like, as it is. Like, when when it sort of started off, I was like, right, yep, this is exactly what I expect. But it, it it's really good at building intensity. And I mean, that that could just be down to the two people wrestling. But like... There's just, again, I wanted to go into this and, like, find flaws in it. And sure, it's a, it's a product of its time, and, like, my God, we'll get to the commentary, but, like, <laughs> I actually really enjoyed this match. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. When I looked at this yesterday, I posted this comment on, um, on Twitter about the commentary. The commentator is a guy called Russ Davis. He's on his own, and we would both like you to understand that speed was a popular recreational drug in the day and perfectly legal <laughs> um, before we start this conversation i posted one of his comments uh yesterday which on both of them Daniel luther as well most of these boys are in the absolute pink of condition <laughs> um but yeah just look as pretty as can be and it's like oh, okay that's an interesting choice of words i know times were different um, the commentary will get much, much worse, but we'll commentate on that as we go through. Um, well, actually, for a 50-minute, well, 53-minute match that this match was, he actually doesn't do a bad job of actually calling the action and being taking it a World Heavyweight Championship match seriously and treating it like a sporting event. Yeah, he does actually. He like As I said, it's the weirdest thing because... For about 60% of the time, he is one of, like, he's a top-tier commentator, especially for, like, play-by-play stuff. He knows his shit. He can get you invested, and then he'll just take you out at the moment by saying something so completely off the wall. You're just like, what the fuck? Where'd that fucking come from? <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's a bit bizarre. And it's intriguing as well, as much as we say, like, you know, like, Fern Gagne's sleeper and um, finisher at the time was the sleeper. 
And he was the first person to really popularize the sleeper as a finishing hold, which really by the 1980s was kind of considered a predictable finisher and kind of going out of fashion. Lou finishes off the second fall in this match with a backdrop driver. You know, this was, they were both simultaneously traditionalist, but also kind of moving things along forward as well in this particular match. Yeah, it's interesting to see the sort of foundations for some of like the more modern moves we see implemented here. Yeah, and as well as, well as there's like both Gamia and Fez were the real deal. They were supreme fighters on every level. You know, they were hardcore shooters. Fez, arguably the definitive shooter in pro wrestling history. His biography was called Hooker. So if you, the, 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 he describes it in the book as there is a pyramid of professional wrestlers. And at the bottom, you have the workers. That's the majority of professional wrestlers um, who can perform match. In the middle on this tri- middle of this triangle, you have the shooters who are genuine fighters who can look after themselves but aren't you know, the, the absolute top tier, but the kind of guys you'd want on your side in a fight. And then at the very pinnacle of this triangle are the hookers, the guys who know every submission hold and dirty trick in the book. And Luthez was the king of the hookers. You know, he was trained by um, Ed Strangle Lewis and all of the the hardcore guys from back in the day who knew every trick in the book from Catches Catch Can Wrestling, uh, the Wigan style, the Carney style in the United States. They knew every trick there was to make a submission work. Also notice as well, Ganyu does, he, Ganyu was not going after a, a regular hammerlock. He was using a Kimura lock. As Russ Davis says, the Japanese hammerlock, uh, which was, you know, being popularized by Kimura at the time. Uh, but it's intriguing that Ganyu picked up on that, even though Fez was the one that probably addressed it in Japan more by that point. Yeah, they, they seem to be like just trying... They knew this match was a big deal, so they were like, right, let's bring every influence we know, even if the audience doesn't know it, and we'll properly showcase just how good we really are. Definitely. This was just where it was all about. And it shows you like where wrestling was at the time as far as live action is concerned. This is the early days of professional wrestling on television. This was the first company to really push professional wrestling um, they ran a show called Wrestling from Marigold, which was the regular arena that they did their weekly shows from. And they would put out two shows a week um, on, um, where was it? The WGN from Marigold in Chicago. Um, and they would also do it on the Dumont Network, which was one of the first early US networks. Um, so they had national coverage as a wrestling company which is kind of unheard of at the time, even though DeMont wasn't as quite as national as they'd like to have been. <laughs> because they were, they, were, they were really on UHF channels, which hadn't really kind of caught on in the United States. Uh, there wasn't as many sets that, well, you know, DeMont were actually, DeMont were in the business of making televisions and bought studios to make sure people had television to watch. Because it was the kind of thing like, it's great, we, we can produce all these TV sets, but no one can actually watch anything because there aren't these TV stations anywhere. So they kind of like 
helped people get TV station sales so people, so people could watch entertainment on the television sets they bought rather than just have them pitched as a picture of furniture stuck in the corner. Um, but Cola, at this point, he, he was, uh, he, well, in 1950, he quit the NWA because Al Hoft, Tootsmont, and Paul Bowser became competing with him in Chicago. That was the New York consortium. So kind of Tootsmont had his hands in all sorts of pies all over the place. But Sam Mushnick, he was then the president of the NWA. He seemed to be the president of the NWA more or less forever. Uh, <laughs> he kind of calmed the waters between all four promoters and everything went back to normal and Cola came back to the NWA. So this would have been, when was it, February 51. This match would have been not long after he was welcomed back to the NWA. So, you know, even without the big names, he was able to maintain a draw in Chicago. Okay, should we move on to the... Sorry? I was just making a little goddamn comment because, like, it's it's wild, the sort of wrestling business, isn't it? Like, we always look at it as this sort of... It's always been crazy from the looks of things. Yeah, no, it's always this bad. Like, pretty much since... Before the days of the NWA, you know, in the days of the gold... from Pretty much from the days of the Gold Dust Trio onwards, it's been like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... The, for those of you who don't know your wrestling history... You should go look up about the the gold Austria because Toots Mom um, and Ed Strangle Lewis and Billy Sandow were the guys that invented the professional wrestling you know today. They were the ones who developed the idea of the finish. They were the ones who developed the idea of um, having uh, a roster so that you could maintain storylines and tell stories through matches. They were the ones who came up with the idea of using a ring. They were the ones that developed the entire professional wrestling uh, aesthetic that you see today. And uh, probably around about 90% of the wrestling you see today comes from those guys. And they basically were, Sandow was the promoter, um, Tootsmont was the creative, and Ed Lewis was the star. And essentially... Funnily enough, the NWA currently has that, <laughs> uh, had that issue in the last couple of weeks with Nick Aldis leaving the NWA. He was the star. Billy uh, Corgan is the creative and the business. Uh, and, but interestingly, it's like, you know, you go back to that trio idea, you need all three to work in synchronicity to make it work as a promotion. And they did for many years. And they kind of eventually took over New York, which was the territory to run in the 1930s. And that's where Mont became kind of like the all-powerful Oz of professional wrestling in the Eastern Seaboard. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's this this has been that. That's what's been going on in, in wrestling ever since. Shall we look at the next match then, which was kind of like a bit of a star match. It's a six-man tag under Australian tag rules, I may add. <laughs> Uh, Vern Gagne, Wilbur Snyder, and Antonio Rocco versus Dick the Bruiser and the Lasowski brothers. What did you think of this, John? You could tell the Lasowski brothers were the bad guys because they were blonde. Yeah. That's like Instantly. the running theme throughout like 50s wrestling. Is if you're blonde, you're a bastard. That's, that seems <laughs> to be the trend. And I, 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 it's Karen. Yeah, again, 
like what I will say, especially despite the fact that everything is in black and white, and nearly all of these guys are just sort of burly men in trunks, there is a hell of a lot of personality despite all that. Like, there's no flashy gear, there's no sort of colourful actions or activities, it's just burly men in, like, trunks. And it's still rather entertaining. Like, Argentina Rocker is one of the best wrestlers I've never heard of until yesterday when I watched these videos. Yeah. Because he's having so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a bizarre match as well. Not to say it's a bizarre match, but it's kind of like, you kind of expect in this kind of circumstance for the heels to take the lead, right? Because that's kind of the way these matches work these days. You have someone getting heat on the smallest guy on the, the babyface team. But that doesn't happen here. Because all the babyfaces are just as big as the, the heels. In fact, probably bigger. And they just, like, they dominate for quite some time. But it's so much fun to watch because Dick the Bruiser is so good at taking bumps. The Ladowski brothers are so good at reacting to stuff. And Schneider and Ganya are supreme wrestlers. And Antonio Rocker is kind of this, um, how can I put it? He's just a, he's very active, very athletic. I suppose he's kind of the Shawn Michaels of his day in that particular sense, like from an athletic point of view compared to the wrestlers, wrestlers around him. Well, this match starts off and it's just, they're just doing a round of back body drops. Vern Gagne's just back body dropping, everybody tags in and they get a back body drop and then they go tag out again. <laughs> and it's just like breakneck speed from beginning to end, which you just don't my expect favorite... from this era, do you? No, my favourite moment is uh, Rocker jumping up onto, I think it's one of the Lazowski brothers. He flips him over and just starts playing the drums on his stomach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like the variations of flying head scissors. <laughs> like it's something you don't really see now. Like there are plenty of wrestlers that have fun with their moves, but when was the last time you saw someone flip someone over and just start playing the drums on them? <laughs> it's like people want to sort of be like, oh, back in my day, wrestling was super serious. And you just did. Here's a fucking guy barefoot flipping people over, playing the drums on them. Wrestling has always been fun. So go yeah. fuck yourself. I mean, this is, the, this, is, this is nothing but fun. And this is the thing is like, Dick the Bruiser and the Lodowski brothers are more than happy to show their ass, which is really what a good heel has to do. You know, they're quite, quite happy for the baby faces to lead the way. And this is, as well, it's just, it's just fun to watch. They're just, all of them know what they're doing. They know how to make this sell. You know, and, and Snyder and the, sorry, Bruiser and the Lodowski brothers do take a bit of time on top, but generally it's just a blast until the end. This would not look out of place on an AWA card today. AEW card, not AWA. <laughs> an AEW card today, because it's just that kind of match. It's very much the just kind of like, let's have a fun wrestling match that you see with like best friends or um, even with the young books when they're in their less serious moods, if you see what I mean. Oh, it's like 36 minutes as well. It's not a short match. And again, oh, they're just, everyone's having a blast. This is a main event. I mean, this is still like, you know, on British TV at this time period, they wouldn't put that many tag matches on television because they thought they were too exciting and they didn't want to kind of like raise expectations too high. Like, 
the Royal Brothers, who were the most popular tag team in Britain ever, probably, I would think. Um, they they would only put them on TV once every two months because they were just that good and they were that like entertaining to watch. They didn't want to like take the draw away from like Giant Asex and uh, uh, Big Daddy and uh, those wrestlers that were kind of top of the card and a bit lumbering. If you see what I mean, they wanted to keep expectations reined in, which is understandable when you've got a monopoly on the market. But Cola here is trying to build an, a national audience for his product, and he knows exactly, exactly who to put, what, where, when, and how. Right, should we move on to the more, like, This was also the time where the commentary started to crack a bit. Because <laughs> <laughs> there were some very yeah. choice things said. He's, yeah, Russ is having fun with this match, really. He's kind of expecting chaos, and he wasn't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> This match is chaos. It's it's back and forth chaos, but it's still chaos nonetheless. Two referees back then as well for a tag match. Yeah. 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 I they think this the... next one is my favourite though. What's the next? Oh, here we go. I, well, yes, I had to include some people. Uh, well, I had to include this person for uh, just for John, which is the great Gypsy Joe, who I don't quite understand how he looks so old in 1954. Oh, it was 1954 when he had this match, and he's still alive now. <laughs> but it's Gypsy Joe. Hardcore legend. John was Gypsy excited. Gypsy Joe died in 2016. Did he? Oh, even though even get to even go, I thought he was alive now. <laughs> well, yeah, but even going to 2016, when he wrestled, like you know, to. to was wrestling in 1951. Really this was 51. Yeah, you know, 45 years later. And he only quit wrestling in like 2010. He was still wrestling for another 40 years. And he, then he looked, did not look young here. He took one hell of a bloody new, like beating against New Jack. Because well, the yeah. promoter never explained how the match was supposed to go. Yeah, just insane. I did that match for the Patreon the other day, trying to just dissect how, like, how it went wrong, and how it could have been avoided. Well, <laughs> numerous things. Uh, New Jack and miscommunication. You have to be very clear with your instructions. Anywho, um, Gypsy Joe and um, Kirilenko, Leon Kirilenko. Um, who was a resident heel in Chicago and noted by Russ Davis, only recently returned to Illinois after he was thrown out of the state for being horrible. Um, going up against Gypsy Joe, he was not popular either. So you've got heel on heel wrestling match here. There's a bit of a baby face turn from Gypsy Joe as the crowd kind of get behind him as they go through this match. Well, it's not violent, it just turns up a notch as you get closer to the end, which is just what they needed to do, isn't it, really? Yeah, like for the most part, again, it's a very, it's a nice technical match with just both of them continuously getting scolded for knuckling each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they're both aware that they're like, they're bad guys in quotation marks. So it's just a case of, right, we'll wrestle and then we'll do something to remind everyone that we're, we're still not clean performers. And it's, it's, it just keeps ramping up as like both guys just want to keep knocking the hell out of each other. It's really fun. 
it's interesting because I'm looking at Kirilenko and he's got a hammerlock on Gypsy Joe. And Gypsy Joe is actually reaching back to reach with his other hand, which is something I've seen Zack Sabre Jr. doing these days. You know, he's reaching back. A lot of the time it's like, it's like Joe gets put in a submission, he just grabs the ropes to try and leverage himself. Yeah. There's just some really nice, like, creativity on display. And as you said, yeah, we can see the sort of influences on modern day wrestlers. It's also the ring seems to be ridiculously small. You know, you don't see it in these two matches because Kirilenko and Gypsy Joe are not the biggest performers. But certainly with Ganya and Fez, like, he was 6'4", 250 pounds. As soon as he falls over, he's in the ropes. Um, so you can see why promotions move to a 20-foot ring. I think Davis at one point was sort of like, the ring might look small, but that's just because the camera's up really high. Yes, which is a good way of covering it. It's, it's the amazing tendon strength thing, which basically means guy looks out of shape. He has incredible tendon strength. You don't like stress the you don't stress the the negatives. You try and push the positive as much as you can in wrestling commentary. And but it does look it doesn't look big. It's not as small as British rings at this particular time, which were tiny. Some British rings were eight foot across. <laughs> but half the size of an American ring. But you can tell why they it's just in it's just not safe <laughs> is basically the issue. Of course, no turnbuckle pad, just a little bit of padding on each turnbuckle as well back then. I've got worn tights as well. That's That was the other thing that always got me about this particular wrestling time period. It must have been the most horribly uncomfortable thing to do, like do a 50-minute Broadway with Luther's wearing worn tights. Ah. I think Gypsy Joe was the first wrestler on this playlist to be wearing something other than black. Yes, black tights, black boots were very popular in this match. As far as we know, of course, they could just have been dark coloured because it is black and white. But Gypsy Joe does wear a lighter colour of uh, Trump's. Having a business. Yeah, definitely, because you can get bled on. <laughs> uh, as we're moving on with our time, we should talk a little bit more history about Fred Collar Enterprises. Fred Collar was also the first promoter to introduce an NWA United States Heavyweight Championship, and that was for Vern Gagne, um, because he was the local champion, he was the local babyface who was top of the company. Um, NWA officials were not happy because they felt it undermined Lou Thez, who was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, um, and as a result of that, Lou refused to wrestle in Chicago after this particular time, uh, after this particular point. Um, uh, and uh, Ganya and Fez would never wrestle each other again. So that was possibly the last time we'd see Ganya and Fez certainly recorded history. Sure, they probably had matches in other in other cities, but this is this was one of the last matches they would have had. Hard wrestling is petty. It is, How but it's understandable. The title, your guy. We have a title on our guy. Yeah, but how are we meant to get that title when it's on your guy? Well, you, you, you waited till, well, you waited till Lou wanted to go skiing <laughs> and you send him off on tour. He dropped the title for that and then go on a skiing tour of Europe and uh, come back and pick the title on your back. That's, that's what you did. True story. Actually, you know the NWA International Heavyweight Championship, which is part of the Triple Crown? That only exists because Lou won that championship just before he left for Europe. Won in inverted commas, that championship just before he left for Europe for a skiing holiday. (laughs) 
and he made an appearance at the Royal Albert Hall, where he offered an open challenge to anyone. Yes, it was sat in the front row, but Bert Azzaretti. Wrestling history is made by these things. We would, of course, lose that title eventually to Ricky Dozan, and it would become Giant Baba's property in the late 1960s and part of the Triple Crown. And that's how, that's how you know, you're right about the pettiness, but that's how it happens. <laughs> that's cause and effect right there. You know. um, but yeah, uh, that's, but that basically, like, Kohler popularized the idea of there being a local champion of a certain, like, you know, regional champion so that the, so it would um, kind of create mystique around the person who was top of your company. Shall we move on to the next match? To the sort of, which led to the sort of Ric Flair tours. Where it's a yeah. case of, right, I'm the top champion, now I'm going to take on all your regional champions. Exactly. And, you know, um, that United States title in Detroit, which obviously was one of the top prizes in the industry because of the original Sheik and because of Bobo Brazil. Um, you know, that was a major draw for that particular promotion. There were regional championships that often had more importance than the actual NWA World Heavyweight Championship, certainly to the local fans. You know, the, the AWA Southern Championship um, was more important, well, the NWA Southern Championship would be more important to Memphis fans than any visiting NWA Heavyweight Champion was. Um, but that started with Collar in Chicago in the 1950s. Shall we move on? Because the next one is intriguing and worrying. This is where the wheels come off a bit. Yeah, this is where the wheels do indeed come off. We're talking about Haile Selassie versus Fuzzy Cupid. Uh, the, from I did my research, to be polite, the, the phrase we were looking for was people of short stature. Um, and you all will figure out what that means. Um, these are two wrestlers who are off short stature. Um, and they have a wrestling match, which is actually really good. The actual match itself is excellent. It's entertaining. It goes on for 22 minutes. There's some brilliant work in it. There's some brilliant character work in it. There's some brilliant actual trio wrestling moves and some wonderful athleticism. It's just that the commentator is clearly away with the fairies for the majority of this match and largely uses infantilizing language to describe these two wrestlers who are men. Really, and should be treated in like said, It's the most condescending commentary I have ever heard. Yeah, it's. I mean, this the, the the thing is with these kind of matches. Part of it is obviously there's an exploitation angle because of you're dealing with people who are not embodied, but you're kind of dealing with them as a creature. But then you look at match quality like this. This is better than some of the heavyweight wrestling you see in this particular. So, in fact, it's had some of the bear, better than some of the heavier wrestling we see today. <laughs> because Fuzzy Cupid is a brilliant heel who knows exactly what he needs to do to wind an audience up. And Haile Selassie is a wonderfully athletic babyface who knows where to put moves in to make everything work. It's actually just a perfectly rounded professional wrestling match, specifically of the time period. It just happens to be done by two people who are of short stature. As far as I can tell, what do you think? Yeah, I have nothing to complain about here other than the commentary. Like the in-ring action is really damn good. 
and like their stature really doesn't matter. They play off each other brilliantly. Like the name Fuzzy Cupid is a choice. But like, <laughs> it again, he's blonde. All blonde yeah. wrestlers are bastards in the fifties. And it's blonde. just I was going to say blonde with a perm. There's very gorgeous Georgeness about him. He clearly had a had an influence. There's, just, there's a lot of fun here, and as you said, it's completely like well done in ring action. If you turn the commentary off of this match, it you will probably just enjoy it as you would any other normal wrestling match. The only reason you can't really shut off is because you're continuously thinking, why the fuck is the commentator acting like these two are children? Yeah, it's not good. It's really not good. And obviously it's of a time, but inappropriate language then is still inappropriate language then. If it's inappropriate now, it was probably inappropriate then. You know, life would be better without it. Um, But yeah, no, this is a corking little match. I really enjoyed it. Um, And again, it's one of those things. I do love that the big finish is like an aeroplane spin into like a, a slam down. It's just really, really traditional sort of wrestling getting the win. It, it really is. I think this is the thing, like wrestling has a past and we should celebrate all of its history, good and bad. I recently did, um, well, before... We finished our time with Steel Share Wrestling Magazine. One of the last pieces I wrote about were, was about the trans wrestlers in Mexico um, and the how they've been perceived down the years. And you know, um, is it exploitation? Is it not exploitation? And it's been. Uh, it's a difficult thing to describe because a lot of the older wrestlers were straight wrestlers who were exploiting gay or trans or femme characters who don't like the fact that the current crop of um, exoticos are actually gay or trans. <laughs> they they were like they they they're quite homophobic despite the fact that they exploited it for years. And then you get it's difficult. They may have been great wrestlers, but they were horrible people who were doing horrible things to, you know, um, denigrate a portion of society that in a conservative Catholic country was marginalized um, and are not happy now that people are accepting of that. You know, it's like there's a pride march in Mexico every year, which was unheard of 20 years ago. Because Mexico has become a lot more liberal than, than it used to be, and LGBTQ people are much more accepted than they used to be. It's just the way the world has moved on, and this is kind of in that era for me. This is exploitative in one sense, but also in another sense, these guys are great. I love watching these guys wrestle. I'd watch these wrestlers, these guys wrestle all day. They're brilliant. So, which way do you run on it? Like I'm watching this series now with Halle Selassie, um, Fuzzy Cupid doing a series of hip tosses, and Selassie then doing uh, a rolling answers. It's just brilliant. It couldn't be executed any better by heavyweight wrestlers or even junior heavyweight wrestlers. But anyway, that's the moral conundrum that wrestling faces us with even today. Though it's less of an issue these days, I think, because wrestling is less exploitative 
but it will always be exploitative. You can't get away from the fact that you're watching people it's been a massive argument over the past couple of years hasn't it the fact that there's no real ethical consumption of wrestling because absolutely not no. always, always down the line there is at least one person getting fucked well, there's always one person getting hurt and it's a it's in whilst there is less chance of you getting hurt than say a ufc fighter it's still an attrition business you will get hurt in the long run because you just will you know, um, and that's the tricky thing, isn't it? You know, unless you're somebody like Ricky Steamboat who managed to work time off into his long and illustrious career, not everybody's Ricky Steamboat, are they? Shall we move on? Oh, is this, we've got, oh, it's Ivan. Pat O'Connor, the legendary Pat O'Connor, who would go on to be the NWA heavyweight champion of the world. Versus the wonderfully named Ivan Rasputin, taking two of Russia's best-known heels, <laughs> Ivan the Terrible and Rasputin, and making them into one name. Um, Pat O'Connor's Pat O'Connor, big lad, knows how to wrestle, wonderful babyface. And Ivan Rasputin is Ivan Rasputin, beard, portly, <laughs> Russian-looking. There you go. And you had lots of you had thoughts about this. What were your feelings on this one? I love this match. Just because Ivan Rasputin is fucking terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> From the way he walks around the ring to just how he manhandles someone the size of Pat O'Connor is just incredible. Like you want monster heel, we got monster heel and Ivan Rasputin, who's just this giant hairy bear of a man wandering around the <laughs> ring, killing Killing one of the most beloved baby faces in wrestling. It's quite the spectacle. Interestingly, I assume this was the main event as it went 18 minutes. More women in the audience for this than there was for the Fez uh, Ganyu match. The Fez Ganyu match was a very male audience, whereas this was a very female audience when you look at the front row. They're all there for Ivan. <laughs> Ivan's raw magnetism. Oh yeah, clearly sex on a stick. I can see that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you like dad bods and um, bald spatches that take over the entire head, then he's your man. Strongly recommend it. They did actually shake hands before this started, which was went downhill for there for Pat. Really, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> that was the that was the funny thing. Cause even Russ Davis was sort of just like they've shaken hands, but the, <laughs> he was. His, he was confused as we were. Do you think what? Well, you can tell like O'Connor. Just... Sorry, Karen. I was going to say, I guess that's just O'Connor being a good spot. Yeah, true. And he, but you can tell why O'Connor would be NWA great champion of the world. He's written all over him. He's built like a brick outhouse. He's good looking. He's He can go. <laughs> <laughs> he can wrestle. He's got it all, hasn't he? The gifts are there. You can see why, he, why the NWA would see faith in him. Yeah, he's he's definitely got sort of like the whole package written on him, and they they were on to a winner when they started booking him the way they did. They definitely did because he would um, be the NWA heavyweight champion. In fact, in 1961, some ten years later, uh, well, nine years later after this, 
um, he and uh, Bully Rogers would have the biggest wrestling gate of all time at the time, or seven years later, in 1961, that Bully Rogers would take the NWA World Heavyweight Championship from Pat O'Connor uh, at Comiskey Park in Chicago in front of 38,000 people, the highest ever attended professional wrestling event in history at the time. And a record that stood until 1984 with the first one out Memorial Parade of Champions in Dallas, Texas, at uh, the old Texas Stadium. Um, and, you know, you have to bear in mind that the matches that were, there were even the matches in Comiskey Park, such as Billy Robinson versus uh, uh, Vern Gagne in 1971, and the Freebirds versus the Road Warriors in, uh, was it, 83? They didn't get that big. They didn't get this big, you know. Misty Park was the big show in in Chicago. Um, Comiskey Park, named after the very famously um, tight owner of the Chicago White Sox. But yeah, so it is like this is kind of like a foreshadowing match of who will be the big draw in the NWA. Ah, yeah, you got you got to give it to Ivan Rasputin. He did know how to be a heel. And again, but it's also minimal effort to get maximum effects. The crowd are really into this, and it's pretty much a straight wrestling match for the first 10 minutes. Yeah, it's quite interesting just to see how like into it crowd, like the crowd gets. But I suppose it's still not new, but like this whole concept of TV wrestling is probably quite the sort of appeal to a lot of them because it's like, I'm watching something here that is going to be broadcast to millions of people. Well, potentially millions of people. Yeah. Yeah. It is, I mean, the demand that we're, we're, we're still kind of like trying to expand at this particular point, but so was Fred Collar Enterprises. You know, um, this match is from 1954. In 1955, they start going out to Albuquerque and Denver and Las Vegas and LA, which are traditionally um, uh, strongholds of other NWA promoters. And they really, really stuck their neck out when they went to Indianapolis, which was Sam Mushnick's territory as part of the St. Louis Wrestling Club. And you didn't stamp on the ground of the St. Louis Wrestling Club because the businessman's gym was the businessman's gym. It was the home of professional wrestling in, in North America. So he was a brave man to try and take on the biggest promoter in North America at the time. But interestingly, he picked up a, a young assistant called Jim Barnett at this particular point, who was the first person to come up with the idea of doing wrestling in a TV studio rather than having to take the equipment to the arena, thus making wrestling production even cheaper. But one of the reasons why this worked on the DeMont network and for the local stations in Chicago was because it's cheap. You stick a camera in a hole and you broadcast it. <laughs> you get a guy to talk who may or may not be on drugs, um, provide him with enough drugs of his choice to waffle on for an hour and a half, and there's your TV show. Um, but yeah, it just, this works. just works. That's it. Um, but yeah, after he tried taking over Indianapolis, which didn't work out well for them. Unfortunately, wrestling from the Marigold ended in March 1956, um, and the company kind of started losing money. Um, even the local company did. 
lost money. And then um, Eddie Quinn started running shows in Chicago against Fred Kohler Enterprises. So he formed an alliance with Vincent J. McMahon, who is Vincent Kennedy McMahon's granddad. Oh, no, dad, not granddad. I'm just trying to make sure I've got the right one. Yes, <laughs> it was Frank McMahon. No, hang on. Vincent's dad, Vincent J. McMahon's dad, was the first promoter in New York for uh, Jess McMahon. That was it. Um, but they were part of Capital Wrestling Corporation, which was owned by Vince McMahon and Tootsmont. And that now allowed him to get in new talent like Bearcat Wright, Buddy Rogers, and Johnny Valentine. Um, and they ended up going back on TV in 1960. Um, and started to be the dominant promotion again. That's how they get to Comiskey Park and uh, the main event of Buddy Rogers and Pat O'Connor for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. We have wrestling from the 1950s to concentrate on. Have you got anything more to say about this match? Uh, no, I think I got everything out. Just Ivan Rasputin is cool. Justice for Ivan Rasputin. <laughs> Justice for Ivan Rasputin. Me. Okay, uh, right then, we move on to, um, well, a family name we're also very quite familiar with. Harry Lewis takes on Bob Orton Sr., as in um, Randy Orton's granddad, not Bob Orton Jr., who wrestled with Roddy Piper in the 80s. And remarkably, I think Randy Orton wrestles more like his granddad than he does his dad. Yeah, you can definitely see the sort of family lineage. Especially Bob in Jun- the sort of psychology. Yeah, Bob Orton Jr. is kind of like a big bump machine of a, of a wrestler. Whereas Randy Orton's not. He's a big dominating heel. Bob Orton Sr. is a big dominating heel. It, Harry Lewis does not stand a chance in this match. They shake hands, then it's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> and it just reminded me of like... He just he wrestles like Randy does, or more to the point, Randy wrestles like he does. There's a certain nonchalance about Bob Orton Senior. There you go, walks up, ties up, pushes him to rope, cracks him in the mouth. Let's go. And that's it. That's that's the whole match. Harry Lewis has got 12 minutes of a beating to take. And that's that's where this match heads up. And Bob just drives ever onward, doesn't care about the rules too much. Make sure he gets his shots in when he gets chance. It's all big hits. Be like Randy Orton, see? Be like Randy Orton. <laughs> the only wrestler who's a bastard that isn't blonde, other than Ivan Rasputin. But it's not like he's like uh, acting in a heelish manner either. He's just beating. Well, a dick. You know, yeah, he's just being. He's just beating him up. He's just going for it every opportunity he can. You know, he does sell a bit. But other than that, he's just trying to he's just trying to outmuscle his opponent because he's bigger and he's stronger and he can do and he's more athletic and he knows it. And that's very much what I think Randy Orton's about. So I think I think when Randy was uh, doing his due diligence, he may have watched some of these tapes <laughs> <laughs> to figure out his way his character was going to be. Well, it's funny because like Orton Senior also kind of gets the win out of nowhere. Yeah, he does. Not with an RKO, as you can imagine. <laughs> Let's see, what's the I can't remember what he does with the win with. Let me have a look. 
click into the end here. There you go. He actually gets the win with a neckbreaker. Oh well, a neckbreaker submission, not neckbreaker drop, which is kind of up. like locks it. Yeah, he just locks it on, and that's it. It's just the guy gives up because there's no, no way you're getting out of that. Yeah, true. But it's, if you think about it, is it is the basis of an RKO. <laughs> just an RKO is a bit more spectacular to watch and is a, is a knockout manoeuvre, not a submission manoeuvre. But there we go. Shall we move on to the next match? Yeah. Oh, no. And now, <laughs> Rose Roman and Lorraine Johnson take on Shirley Strimple, Romana Tassal, in Chicago International Amphitheater in, oh, when was it? Oh, I missed the dates there. What time of day was it? Oh, I remember a date on it. 1955. We're a little bit later on. They went through some ring announcers. This is about the fourth ring announcer, unless this guy's aged an awful lot since the first one because he's got white hair now. Um, Those four years took a lot out of him. (laughs) (laughs) He was sitting next to Russ Davis for four years every Friday night in Chicago. And it's an inside hair. He just fell into Russ Davies' cork supply. <laughs> um, this is a a pretty damn good women's tag team match. Best of three falls. Um, with some big stars of the day. Again, blonde heels. Male or female, all heels are blonde. Yep. Yeah, that's that's the rule. Um and Intriguingly, Russ Davis does explain the fact that the two baby face girls, one's a redhead and one's a brunette, and the two heels, one's a blonde and one's a, a brunette. Not realizing that we're watching on a black and white TV set and you not tell who's a redhead. You can actually just tell by the lighter coloring who's a redhead and who's a brunette and who's blonde. But really, on the quality of sets they would have had back in the time, I'm not sure you would have seen. Um, I always like how the fact the referee gives long and detailed instructions before every match, like they've never had a wrestling match before. <laughs> but they're all asking probably questions laying about out the all the groundwork. He's probably laying out all the rules so we know exactly what the hell the heel's going to break. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's bizarre. Um, but yeah, again, this match is actually of quite high quality. For all of the people saying women don't draw, this was the main event that drew 9,000 people. Or help draw 9,000 people. Yeah, it's a really entertaining match. There's a lot of great wrestling in it. There's four really talented wrestlers. Everyone's got their own unique approach to things. There's some nice sort of back and forth team drama. It's just, yeah, it's a really good main event tag match. It just so happens to be done by women. And they're drawing. So fuck off, Billy Corgan. (laughs) Anyway. Yes, we we um, kind of have to address the elephant in the room again, don't we? We do, indeed. I mean, if you um, if you heard the comments this week of Billy Corgan, and indeed, I have to say, um, the former NWA heavyweight champion, whose name currently escapes me, uh, Trevor Murdoch. Yeah, Trevor Murdoch. Trevor Murdoch pointed out that he thought women's wrestling was great, but he didn't think there was anyone any women strong enough to main event a pay-per-view in a NWA style and then promptly lost it to Tyrus and Matt Cardona. And it's like... I think the funniest thing is <laughs> that the NWA show yesterday had 
Max the Impaler versus is it Natalia Malkova? So there was a women's yeah. a women's title match on there between a woman and a non-binary performer that was probably way better than any other match on the card. Oh, there was um, uh, well the main event anyway. The people that watched it told me the NWA Women's Championship match between Camille Chelsea Green and um, Kylan King was the best match on the card by far. So, you know, and there was a women's tag team match on that card too, which was also very good because the women involved were actually been very good as well. And it's like, what does it say to the women on your roster? All right, Chelsea Green, we have a feeling she's off back to WWE. So fair enough. But, and Kylan King's an AEW regular. But what does that say to Tony Khan? Oh, yeah, I'm taking one of your regulars to main event my pay-per-view, but she really isn't good enough for the show. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why would you say that? Why? Why? Doesn't make any it's sense. It's like they've just been—they've been diving around in Russ Davies's brain. It is, and it's like you know, half that card had important women's matches on it. So why not promote them as great? You know, and it is like I'm not being funny. Any match involving Tyrus is not going to be any good at all. Um, as he, as I, as I pointed to this morning, uh, when I found out, when I woke up to the news that he was the new NWA Heavyweight Champion, I did say. He is that extra special um, mix of talentless and truly awful. Um, but there you go. I do? was laughing because, like, yesterday was one of the sort of biggest days for wrestling. Like, mm. I watched this playlist and then enjoyed the NGI from GCW and was watching some of the ICW No Holds Bad matches. And then, of course, speaking of just horrible places, XPW had a show on. Which had about three sure. people there. And wrestle, it's Wrestle Queendom 5 today as well. Um, going this is on a there great weekend for wrestling. It is, as most weekends are these days. Hyper Mizawa is in the UK. Yeah, she is. And even things like um, Marafuji went and hang out with the AW roster this week uh, to go see some old friends, as uh, a lot of the DDT guys are, are in um, uh, doing AW, AW shows. I guess Cyberfight lets some airplane ticket out so they can all go. Um, Esther brought Yonakiyama with him. Yonakiyama and Takashita up against Ortiz and King, Eddie Kingston on uh, on Dynamite this week. That should be interesting, definitely. It's Eddie Kingston's dream, all-time dream match. He only ever wanted to wrestle Yonakiyama. And hopefully that'll go to a singles match at some point. But anyway, we should get back to talking about this match. It is incredibly athletic. It does kind of remind me of those All Japan Women matches in the 1980s. Um, just from like, I guess they realised we're going to have to go like hell to get over because we're women. So they had to go like hell to get over. But also, I think as well, you notice it more in these matches. The singles matches are going to be long and drawn out affairs. So the tag matches, when you can get a breather, they are going hell for leather. They're not holding back. Like, you'll see a tag match now, and because of the way hot tags work, somebody will be in a hold for 50, like five, five to ten minutes, and then you get the big pop because, you know, you've had a hot tag. Where there isn't really, there is a bit of hot tag work going on in this, but there isn't anywhere near as much. And because it's best of three fours, you can't use that formula over and over again. So the booking is making it a bit more interesting, I think. Exactly. And to be fair, when I was watching this one at first, I thought, 
hang on a sec, is the camera sped up? It's not, they were just moving that fast. Like, this is a zippy match. Yeah. God, um, I'm even sounding like from the fucking 50s now. <laughs> but you're not wrong. It's it's certainly of a style, but they're off hell's weather. Like, they're, um, they're just the baby faces have just got a leg lock on their heels at the moment, and there's a bit of back and forth on that. But it is just like, they are moving. They really are. Uh, Lorraine Johnson as well is outstanding. She doesn't really get going until like five or six minutes into the match, but she really does know how to wrestle and get the best out of her opponents too. She's easily, I think she's the most fascinating of of the wrestlers in this match. Myself. This is just another match you kind of have to watch on mute. Yes, or you will get distracted by Russ Davies and his incredibly um colourful remarks. Chauvinism uh... again, yes, time periods. It, it's still kind of awkward to listen to. Yeah, it's just embarrassing though. It just makes you cringe. Um but yeah. Rose Roman also like these aren't handpicked names, are they? Rose Roman doesn't sound quite right. Shirley Strimple, obviously she's trying to be Shirley Temple. She's adapting yeah. things. Um, and Romana Romana Tess Romana Tessel. Romana Tessel. Clearly Italian. <laughs> uh, very Italian. Um, but yeah. Oh, this is good. I liked it. Should we move on? Yes, to the silent match. Oh, thank God for this. 1956, Joan Ballard versus... Um, oh yeah, by the way, this is from the Russ Davis collection. The Russ and Sylvia Davis collection. So they basically had saved all of these and recorded all of them and given them to the Chicago Film Archive. So while we must complain about his his uh, commentary standards, him and his pa- him and his wife did manage to save all of the wrestling for us. We have to be thankful for him, especially for this I, match because I loved this match. It was great. Like all complaints aside, I actually really like Russ Davis as a commentator. Like when he's not being like offensive, he is really good at the job. Like he was keeping me invested in some of these matches at points because he's making like really silly points about the wrestlers. He knows his moves. He knows how to keep like the drama burning. It's just he also has some very unfortunate time dated views. Indeed. Um, and God knows what his commentary would have been like on this particular match. Um, I had heard of Joan Bollard before, but I'd never heard of Gene Noble. And then I did some research on Gene Noble. Well, I'll talk about that after you've given your thoughts. What did you think of this? It was really damn good. It, it's always awkward watching wrestling in complete silence, but like it was, as far as in-ring action goes, it's probably one of the best matches in the playlist. It's really, really good. Yeah. I mean, I don't it, really have much to say. It's just really good. I mean, Joan Ballard starts with a drop kick or two and then straight into a headlock, which is very much AJW in the 80s kind of deal. And Jean Noble is kind of a bit of a powerhouse. What I found out about her is she's working heel in this match just by being dominant and violent, basically. <laughs> um, but she worked as a heel largely through her career. She not only wrestled as Jean Noble, but she also wrestled as... Um, the Lady Angel, um, 
who basically she shaved her head and painted her eyes black. I did black eye makeup to make herself scary. Um, and uh, she, which was kind of a base on a, there was the French angel uh, wrestler who uh, suffered from a physical disability that made his head incredibly large. So she based her character based on him. Um, but she obviously has loads of character as a working heel. Um, she didn't need to do all that, but she did just to kind of like make herself more of an attraction because um, she knew that being an attraction wrestler amongst the attraction wrestlers of being a female wrestler would get her a lot more bookings. And it's a brave move to shave your head in 1956, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's going the extra length. Yeah, definitely. She had another character as well. Um, I'm just going to make it short. Uh, not to be confused with Kay Noble, who was a different wrestler from uh, the 1960s. Or uh, Lady Angel was one character. Iva Jean Noble was her full name. Um, and she's listed as one of the most bizarre wrestling attractions of all time. Um, but yeah, she, it's clear to me that like she um, um, clearly developed her wrestling skill and then decided to take advantage of the fame of the French Angel. Uh, the French Angel was a wrestler called um, Maurice Tillet, who had uh, uh, I don't remember the name, but yeah, he had a benign tumor on the pituitary gland, resulting in bone overgrowth and thickening. So basically, it meant he had giantitis of the head. Essentially, his head was really incredibly large, and that made him again an exploitative attraction. He was also billed as the world's ugliest man, which can't be you know, particularly pleasant. Um, but he did start wrestling in the 1930s, and obviously Noble took advantage of that, um, basing her character on uh, the same thing. But basically, all she did was shave her head and outline, do her eyes in big, thick eyeliner, uh, made her eyelash, made her eyebrows big and dark, and then blacked out her eyes, making her head look even bigger, and pulled a lot of faces. <laughs> But in this match, she's actually really a good technical wrestler who can put on an entertaining show and reads an audience like a book as well. She's easily the biggest heel on this show just from the rule-breaking that she's doing. Yeah, and it's almost, it's almost like women actually get the wrestling industry too. Yes, the even part. in 1955. 56, sorry, I do apologise. Shall we move on? I think this is the last yeah. one on our playlist. Um, yeah, our last match. Our last match on this playlist. This was an enjoyable run. And I kind of wanted to include this match just because uh, I'd never seen Haystacks Calhoun wrestle. Obviously a massively influential big guy monster wrestler. Uh, and I've seen plenty of Buddy Rogers matches, but I wanted to see what he would do with a big monster like um, Calhoun and what the the difference was. Because obviously... You know, generally the dynamic, the, the accepted dynamic in wrestling today is the monsters, the heel, and the smaller guys, the babyface. But Buddy Rogers is like the perfect heel. He was United, NWA United States Heavyweight Champion at the time. This was 1961. 
So this is him going, he was soon going up against Pat O'Connor for the NWA Heavyweight Championship. Um, and he's defending the US Heavyweight Championship against uh, Haystacks Calhoun, who's a big guy, to say the least. <laughs> a big monster of a man would obviously have uh, an influence on Giant Haystacks because he took his name from Haystacks Calhoun. Um, big old farm boy character who can actually move for his size. There's a bit of Amish influence in Calhoun's beard, uh, but it's interesting to see because obviously a guy like Calhoun would be pitched as an attraction, much in the same way as Andre the Giant would be somewhere down the line. And for him to get a title match is unusual. But then again, we saw Andre the, title, Andre the Giant getting title matches in Japan, so maybe not. Um, but actually, Calhoun could move, and he was very athletic for his size. Yeah, he he moves. He really moves, and it, it's quite impressive. Like, like this this is a big guy, like a big guy, and he is still moving like someone half his size. <laughs> For sure, definitely. I think this match had my favorite finish to it as well, just because of how creative it was. Do you want to explain that finish, John? So basically Calhoun looks like he's finally got Rogers sort of on the ropes and then all of a sudden he like Calhoun gets thrown at the ropes and the ropes break and he basically collapse like crashes to the floor and the match is called off. And I just love that. The idea that it's like, right, we know Rogers can't pin Calhoun and we know Calhoun can't beat Rogers. So how about we just have the monster get knocked the hell out because like he literally fought like breaks the ring. It's like, yeah, all right, that works. Yeah, yeah, it's like he's actually outdone by his own athleticism and size. That's that's a you know that's a really cool kind of way of doing that. It. It's very creative. They knew what they were doing, and it's interesting. We've watched ten years worth of wrestling, and you've gone from this pure straight wrestling. Uh, delivery to this very gimmick orientated kind of like two character wrestlers. I mean, uh, Calhoun's athletic, but he's never going to be Luthez. Uh, but Buddy Rogers is an accomplished technical wrestler, but he's he's very much he's the ultimate heel. He's the nature boy, Buddy Rogers, the very first nature boy, and you can you know obviously a massive influence on the industry. Blonde-haired heel, pretty boy, body man, uh, with a mouth. And how many times have we seen that since? It was ironic he picked, like, a Nature Boy Buddy Rogers match, because obviously one of the biggest sort of controversies of this week is um, Sarah Logan coming back (laughs) and WWE all but ripping off Max the Impaler. And someone... Like, quote tweeted this thing. If you think this is bad, you should have seen how badly Ric Flair ripped off Buddy Rogers. Well, it's <laughs> true, like... but uh, it's it's not yeah, untrue. But, but, but Buddy Rogers actually gave him permission to do it. This is this thing. is twice this year that WWE has ripped off indie gimmicks because Axiom is just oh, like. Is literally almost identical to Razor Wing. An A kid yeah. who plays Axiom, I'm pretty sure knows Razor Wing, so that one's just sad. 
and like Sarah Look and half assing Max the Impalers look again might not be it's probably not their choice how they're presented but like fucking hell like all yeah. it takes is a little bit of searching to realize oh I probably shouldn't be ripping this person off yeah but that's that's creative thing. bankruptcy that's the thing I think MVP said it this week about um the rule is that whoever gets it on national TV first, that's their finisher. Hence why Kenta couldn't use the go to sleep whilst CM Punk was in WWE and he was Hideo Itami. Um, but it is just like, um, it's unfortunate. But it's one of those things, really. But yeah, but this is just outright plagiarism. And that is the thing, it's like Woody Rogers also gave Ric Flair permission to be the next nature boy. It's not like Flair ripped him off wholesale. Flair brought things to that character that was different for sure. Um, Buddy, you know, it's Buddy Landell, not so much. <laughs> Buddy Landell did rip him off wholesale and was proud about it to the point where he was going to wrestle um, Buddy Rogers until Buddy Rogers had to pull out for health reasons. Buddy Rogers was going to wrestle Buddy Landell in Chicago on an independent show over the Nature Boy title, over the Nature Boy name. Buddy Rogers was in his 70s at that particular point. Maybe in his 80s, I mean. He was old. <laughs> but there you go. Um, but yeah, Buddy, Buddy, Buddy Rogers, not Buddy Landell. Buddy uh, Rogers was, he's still like a mercurial drawer. You see why he was kind of like the cornerstone of so much in terms of the WWF in Chicago um, and would have a long career uh, even after his kind of final run in the WWF, losing the title to Bruno San Martino, um, it's it's but he just is the prototype heel for modern wrestling, isn't he? Yeah, he he's got the look, he's got the attitude, he's got the skill, he's got yeah. Like if you're gonna have to emulate like the style of someone, especially if you're gonna be a villain, and yeah, this is how you do it. And again, blonde. Yeah. I mean, he was a jerk, don't get me wrong. <laughs> he was the reason why um, uh, Carl Gotch got blackballed out of North America, basically. Body Rogers' crew would work with him. Um, and he's the reason why Bruno got shifted out of the WWF in the first place. Um, that was the, that was the rumour when, well, basically, Bruno was going well up the card in New York. Vincent McMahon Senior loved him. Um, and But then Buddy came along and kind of, uh, Buddy always worked with a crew. He would bring them all in. They would make sure they were all worked after and they all looked after him. And so Bruno kind of got shunted down the card and eventually left to go to Toronto where he was a massive draw uh, for Jack, Frank Tunney, uh, Jack Tunney's dad. And then um, eventually, Buddy Rogers and Vince McMahon Senior fell out, and of course, Buddy had the WWF Championship, and Vince wanted the title back, and Bruno wasn't going to give him back the championship at any the easy point, any easy way. So they called Bruno Sammartino in to be the top guy in New York, and what I from what I've read. On that night in New York City for the WWF Championship, Bruno got in the ring and said, Buddy, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. 
30 seconds later, Bruno Sammartino was WWWF World Heavyweight Champion. <laughs> so, you know, wrestling history has an intriguing way of coming around on things. As we started this story with the double cross of uh, Don Eagle, we'll end it with the double cross of Buddy Rogers, I suppose. What goes around comes around in wrestling history, as we know. Wrestling! Being the wrestling. Game of Thrones since the 1950s. Oh, probably one before that. I would think. I think you could arguably say probably since the Goldust trio, probably the 1920s. Because back in the day, if you had, do you know how they used to settle disputes between wrestling territories back in the day? This is brilliant. <laughs> they, they, no, they well not far off. They would have a ten match show. One guy from each promoter in a shoot fight, sell tickets. Whoever wins the most matches takes the territory. That's how it works. That was the honourable way of doing things. In fact, the first oh, time... One day they're going to bring that back, aren't they? Like, it's just going <laughs> to be... It's going to be like the brawl for all, but with, like, in 10 different wrestling companies. But the... <laughs> Well, that's how Luther's met Ed Lewis because he, Ed Lewis was called into St. Louis to um, help out with um, a dispute between the St. Louis promoter at the time. Once I'm mentioning it by then, but the, the St. Louis promoter at the time had an uh, had an issue with another local promoter, and the local promoter called in his ringers, and the St. Louis promoter called in his ringers. One of which was Ed Lewis. First time Luther's saw Ed Lewis. Uh, Ed Lewis had a training regime. Of he would wrestle 10 guys in a row. So he would wrestle one until he made one submit, then he would do another nine after that. That was his training for the day. In a sparring session. Because <laughs> Ed Lewis was an inhuman. He was on a different level as far as sheep fighting was concerned. And hockey generally. But there you go. See, it's um, been we, so much more fun than talking about New Japan. It has. You know, there's plenty of historical stuff we can talk about in New Japan. We can also speak so much, we can only talk so much about Master Wato's fringe. So, there you go. As much as we all fact, enjoy Master... Carry on. Go on. I was going to say, or as much as you can talk about Master Wato's fringe. You go on. <laughs> I was just going to say, oh, how... They keep booking the same shit over and over again. The most, the most creative thing I've seen from like New Japan this week was Hiromu Takahashi's attempt at um, breaking a Guinness World Record. Oh, of his fly going up and down. Well, I mean, I've, I haven't watched the match with Despi and Ishimori going up against Wato and, and Takahashi, but apparently they all did try because they wore matching tights. <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. Well, we don't really like one another, but we're, we're, we're going to have to wear matching time for this. <laughs> so I thought I that, was, that was a nice touch. They tried. Bless them. They tried. <laughs> I think Despy wants to come to the US and just do death matches, and I hope to God he does one day. Like, death match Despy is such, such a gem. I'm not sure if he wants to do it all the time. I'm not sure if New Japan will let him do it all the time because he's far too valuable to them now. He's unfortunately made himself invaluable to them because he's he's basically been the ace of the promotion for the last 18 months. As much as I like Ishimori. 
Okay, sorry, as much as I like. We suffer from the gentleman issue, don't we? Because we both like it's like right, I'll let him finish, and then the silence goes on. So like, all right, guess I'm finishing. <laughs> I think we have a bit of a lag issue. It's been particularly bad today because we have a bit of a lag issue. Do you want to finish first? I was just going to say one of my favourite matches of this year was seeing Kasai and Despy from Taka Taichi Despy Mania. Like it was. That match got so much hype, and I've never seen a match look quite live up to it. So, if Despy wants to do death matches more often, then I I will happily watch them. I was going to say uh, it's great having Ishimori as champion. I think he's amazing. I think he's brilliant. But you just do feel like you're waiting for Despy or Hiromu to have the title back. Yeah, which is a that's... shame because it, it it it's symptomatic of just how hard it is to believe in that sort of division sometimes because you can have a champion you're just like right when they're going to give it back to the top guy because that's all we yeah. know they're going to do we do and it, but it is, a, it is as well it's like you, you can't run Despi and Hiromu at the top all the time they'd end up killing themselves because they're both far too committed to that role and it's nice to give them a break but it does mean because they're that far ahead of everybody else and that's no knock it's, it's the same in the Liger era the difference is Liger was such a star at making other people look absolutely amazing. Hiromu and Despi can do it as well. Well, Despi has basically made Master Wild a credible main event junior heavyweight. Um, and, you know, Hiromu has done an awful lot of work to make Wato seem pretty damn good as well. Not knock on Wato, he's improved an awful lot. But you, you still see them as like two or three stages above everybody else. Does that make sense? I went just to Shida the... used to be in the company and it was just a case of, right, well, mm. when are they giving the bell back to Kashida? See, that's the thing. It's like when Hiromo turned up against Kashida, Hiromo was just that much better, presented as a much better wrestler than Kashida was. And that's what kind of like gave him the intervist to start with. But it, and that's what kind of changed the game, and we haven't had anything like that that's changed the game except for Desco Despy breaking out as they become this breakout star. He's willed himself to be a Junior Japan Junior Ace, and the fact that you've got two aces is quite remarkable, just because of how good Hiromu is. Um, is but there we go. We should finish our story off with Chicago wrestling. Um, Kala eventually left the NWA and founded the International Wrestling Association. Uh, in 1963, um, and it positioned itself for the, against the NWA. Well, unfortunately, it only lasted about a year because, obviously, without all of that help from the NWA, all of those big stars were no longer with the company. And eventually, um, he sold out. Um, he went into receiving ships. All the assets were sold at auction, um, and the territory was taken over by Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder, the owners of the World Wrestling Association who were an affiliate of the AWA, as you'd imagine, Wilbur Snyder and Dick the Bruiser being. And they took over booking Chicago in the 1960s and kind of worked heavily with the AWA to produce those big cards that we saw in the 70s and 80s. Um, and that kind of really ends things as far as um, the story of Chicago wrestling that we're looking at today. What's been your overall thoughts on this particular playlist, John? Or anything you'd like to ask? As I said, I, I went in this, into this with an agenda. I, I was hoping that the sort of stuck-up classical wrestling fans would be proved wrong, and annoyingly, they haven't been. But 
I did really enjoy this. It was a surprisingly enjoyable collection of matches that, although some of them run rather long, I didn't get bored watching. I didn't tap out as often as I would with some things. I didn't skip ahead too many times. It was just, yeah, there's a lot of fun to be had here, despite it being black and white classical wrestling. <laughs> like this, this was an experience, both learning and an enjoyment experience. So for once, the sort of stuck up their own ass wrestling fans get one up on me. <laughs> I mean, I love historic wrestling. I love going back and watching historic wrestling. And I think it's nice to kind of like find stuff that's just like you knew it was great because you've read about it, but it's difficult to visualize what it was like because, you know, the wrestling world has moved on so much since then. So this was great to see from that particular point. I'd say one of my favorite styles of wrestling is like the UWFI style. So it's, it's yeah. not like I'm turned against classical technical wrestling. It's just a lot of the time it's always portrayed as just being, oh, well, this was the finish and this was this. And it's just like, well, no, it's so much more than that. Because it was all about presentation and build and pacing. And like these days we have wrestlers with gas tanks that can pull off spot fests. You probably yeah. did back then. It just wasn't in vogue to do so. So they never did. Argentine no. rocker kind of shows that you can have like athleticism and fun while still maintaining that classical style. It's it's just a nice mix of seeing how the old sort of age of wrestling was and how it's influenced the modern day. Right then, we will call it for today. Where can we find you on the internet, John? Uh, you can find me at the Sinking Ship Twitter at the handle John Deathman. <laughs> that will give you the gateway to hell to writings, ramblings, opinions, screenshots of shows that I find funny with funny captions. Um, you can find me on Instagram at John underscore Deathman. That's kind of the backup in case Twitter finally goes away of the Titanic because Elon Musk is a giant fucking iceberg. And if you want to read features on Deathmatch, both modern day and historical, including the aforementioned Gypsy Joe versus New Jack piece on how it could have been avoided, then you can find Deathmatch Digest on Patreon for a five or a month. You get your own mini wrestling magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Sheriff So You can find the show Troopany Show on Twitter uh, at, at The Troopany Show. Uh, sorry, at Troopany Show. You can find us on Facebook, The Troopany Show, and on Patreon, where we keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. Yes, we may be getting another social media account, probably an Instagram account, because we've got to figure out how to promote the show one way or another, uh, which is kind of difficult when the entire wrestling community tends to do their stuff through Twitter because it's the easiest and openest way of doing it. But we'll have to find different strategies in how well we be. Who knows? Maybe we'll find a new audience when we get to Instagram. Um, but if you are still on Twitter, Come see us. Come say hello. Uh, got a lot of people wanting to listen to this show because of uh, me live tweeting what I was watching on Saturday. So hopefully a lot of you will come and listen to the show and come and find us on the internet. We, we are hoping that Twitter doesn't go away, is basically what we're saying. Because it's nice. We like it. All right, take care. And we'll speak to you next week. No idea what we're doing next week. We haven't got that far yet. We will have the return of Today At with the World Tag League and Best of Super Genius Tag League. Um, probably not on the day, because it's an awfully big 
one tournament and the matches it's two tournaments in one and doing best of super juniors proved how difficult it was for me this year and the g1 really did so we'll see how it goes <laughs> but i will get to it as best i can for now take care and we'll speak to you soon bye